0: You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We are sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm Mark Brisley, head of Dynamic Funds. What will demand look like as the world emerges from COVID-19 restrictions? What will be the impact of behaviour change? Will we completely return to previous habits? And will sustainable or renewable energy production accelerate? One of the sectors that perhaps inspires answers to these questions more than any other is of course energy. My guest today is based out of the heart of the Canadian energy industry, Calgary, Alberta. She is close to the company she covers and regularly on the ground in other major global energy hubs. Jennifer Stevenson's extensive energy industry experience spans nearly three decades, and she's fostered a global approach to casting a wide net in search of the highest quality companies with solid management teams and sustainable long-term business models. Jennifer's commitment to actively managing her portfolios in combination with her vast experience allows her to take advantage of the inherent complexity of the sector so she can invest in the various segments of the global energy supply chain and benefit from niche events and pricing spreads. Jennifer, it's a pleasure to have you join us today. Welcome and thank you for coming on.
1: Really happy to talk to you, Mark. Thanks.
0: So if I was to look back to the spring and refer to that as a pretty crazy time for oil prices, which would be just a massive understatement, we've really seen prices stabilize over the summer months. That would seem to imply that the market is relatively balanced. Can you walk us through what's been happening in the supply-demand equation that's helped hold this level of price equilibrium in a, you know, what's been considered a pretty noisy period?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really pertinent question because Crazy Spring is certainly the, the understatement of all, because we had WTI briefly trade negatively because there was a bunch of speculation in the financial trading of the West Texas Intermediate Oil Contract and you need if you are long that contract you have to take physical delivery when the contract expires other oil contracts like Brent in the uk and rc you don't so unless you happen to have access to storage in cushing oklahoma if you're along that contract on expiry date and you don't have storage you have to sell it so that gave us a crazy spring and, and the stability since then is really a combination of material opec plus so that's opec plus russia Cuts to production combined with everyone else, non OPEC, having much lower capex, much lower activity in the energy sector, so therefore much lower supply. And then we've seen that initial demand recovery once we came out of the first phase of lockdowns from COVID. So we've got all of these supply cuts, OPEC Plus in particular, combined with that demand recovery that got us into a more balanced place for oil supply demand and therefore oil prices.
0: You know, despite the fact that it does seem like the, the world is opening again and, and people are out and and uh, back to some, I won't say normal habits, but certainly integrating back into uh, work and some limited travel, do you see a permanent result or any sort of change in consumer habits as a result of covid and that you know, ultimately having a permanent impact on demand?
1: Yeah, right, right now, what we're seeing in the numbers as far as demand impacts is really focused on jet fuel. So pre-COVID, we burned globally about 8 million barrels a day of jet fuel. And that's out of total oil supply of 100 million. So that's a lot. And we've, we've got about half of that back. So that's still a big gap. So I think that is a longer term repair. I mean, just when you, when you look at the, the data from the airlines and the data from the TSA about how many people are flying, how many planes are flying. We've got the cargo planes flying, but not the passenger planes. So I do think that that particular consumer habit is going to be slower and has been so far slower to recover so that's the one area where we're seeing an impact on demand that's more long-term.
0: It seems like such a long time ago that I'm going to refer to prices being at around $60 to where we are today. Are there any concerns with respect to the producers in the space and especially those you're investing in around cash flow impacts or dividends?
1: Yeah, that's always a concern for the market when you've got volatility in prices or when prices stabilize and at new levels that are lower but we're really focused on that and and we always run really conservative price decks because we don't want to be surprised by free cash flow levels by dividend payments that sort of thing so as far as any concerns about cash flows or dividends in the space none whatsoever with any of the companies that we own and we are more weighted to pipelines than to producers. And our pipeline companies continue to grow their dividends. And with our producers, out of all of our portfolios, we actually only had one producer that cut their dividend. And that was Suncor in Canada. And lots of reasons for them to do that because it was enabling them to reduce their break even, So their dividend included breakeven is now in the 30s. So we've got lots of cushion for any further price volatility. So that was sort of a one and done type of cut and their plan over the long term is is to revert back to dividend growth as things continue to improve and stabilize.
0: You know, and that we've already talked about price stability and changing consumer habits and, you know, producer cash flow impacts on on dividends that sort of thing. Another major concern since all this has started has been the prospect of a potential second wave. And some might argue that we're already seeing it. Unfortunately, there are signs of one emerging in Europe. Have OPEC and other major producers laid out plans for how to adjust supply in a second wave scenario?
1: Yeah, OPEC's super focused on this. They actually just had their monthly meeting yesterday. So every month, a a group of OPEC ministers called the the jmmc which is the joint ministerial monitoring committee they meet every month so they met yesterday and they're the discussion coming out of that meeting they're really focused on compliance so anybody that's cheated which means they haven't met their cut obligation has to make it up so they were working on making it up till the end of september they've given them an extension keep making up your cuts to the end of december but the other thing that came out of that meeting is that they're really focused on what demand is telling them, how demand is looking, how demand is trending with all of the daily data that we get. And they, they said at the meeting yesterday that their plan when they had this big OPEC plus agreement was that they would relax some of the cuts in December such that more oil would be made available. And they were talking yesterday that, you know, if demand isn't there, and if demand isn't there, that's going to be a result of something like a COVID second wave. If demand isn't there, we won't do this reduction of the cuts. So they're already talking about that, anticipating that this might need to happen. They also talked about if we need to get the broader, not just the ministers, but more of the, the members of OPEC involved, they would call an emergency meeting for October to talk about it. So they're very, very focused on managing the supply side of oil because they are very focused on needing the pricing to be reasonable for their economic survival. And all of that hinges on demand and that's going to be affected if there's a second wave. So they're definitely on it.
0: Shifting gears just a little bit, this year in particular, you've added exposure to renewable energy names in your portfolios. We haven't typically seen many of these names in the portfolio before, so what's the thesis here? I know that it's a subject that's talked about a great deal, especially you know within the media, but is this a tactical move or should we expect to see more of these types of names in the future in, in the portfolios you're running?
1: Yeah, that's a super question because it's not tactical. It's not saying, oh, renewables are great because, because we've got issues with, say, jet fuel demand. It's that the... over the last few years, like less than all the fingers on one hand, the the costs of renewables have really come down. And even in the last 12 months, they've come down another step function. So these renewable names now have returns on their projects that are as competitive as the hydrocarbon companies because the costs have come down. So it's definitely... Uh, not a tactical move. It's a structural move so that we can look to add these renewable companies that have that great growth profile because demand for the renewable energies is increasing. So we can add those into the portfolio along with those solid e and pipeline names that are in there and get the best of both worlds.
0: Okay. So, and then on the topic of renewables it seems that a number of the major integrated names are increasing their investments in projects to reduce their carbon footprints. So BP, for example, recently did a strategy rebrand around this. How does the energy investment community view these steps?
1: Yeah, that's fun because I mean, BP, BP this week, they had their, their investor day, but it took them three days and 15 hours of presentations to talk about it. And I mean, BP, way back when, sort of three CEOs ago, BP, they did a big branding, Yippee Yahoo, and BP became Beyond Petroleum. And and then the renewable stuff they were doing back then didn't make any money. So then they stopped it and went back to hydrocarbons that did make money. And now we've got this going from an integrated energy company to an international energy company. And they, they've done some investments with Orsted and Offshore Wind, and they've they've made a big splash and as far as how the energy investment community views these steps it's very dependent on what the companies are doing as far as project and returns and how that fits into the strategy and whether it's attainable because bp is taking a 180 degree shift they're going to be reducing their their hydrocarbon output in their plan over the next several years by 40 percent and investing all this money in renewables and yet i can look across the street at companies like shell and total shell did have to cut their dividend because their balance sheet is is heavier than someone like total who hasn't and they've been investing in renewables for years and making money at it for years and the growth outlook from both of them is impressive and they're in a wide range of renewable projects so I think the investment community is, is discerning enough to give credit where it's due, like say a total or even a shell, and be skeptical where it's not yet proven. We, I can't tell you that BP knows how to make money in renewables. They made a big splash and we'll watch and see, but I'm not uh, interested at this point in putting capital over there yet. So it's very, very company returns and project specific as far as the view at this point.
0: Yeah, well, certainly the sustainable and renewable energy conversation is going to be an evolving one. Jen, you know, when all this started back in April or when things were really evolving back in April, uh, the conversation in the energy space was certainly focused on Russia, the U.S. and Saudi it would seem now the Russian US conversation is more squarely focused on the US election, but we'd like to get your insights on on that that connection between those those three mega producers of energy and, and what's been happening lately and, and what your view is going forward.
1: Yeah, that that is like the triad of intrigue, Russia, US, Saudi, at least as far as oil markets. So I mean, yeah, going back to, to your time frame, we had the the Russia Saudi bun fight where Saudi Saudi and Russia were arguing about production curtailments and, and that sort of thing. And Saudi said, watch this, and flooded the market with oil for a couple of months. And that was basically brought to a resolution by Trump getting, getting everybody in a room and and getting them to agree to go back to doing the orchestrated cuts, so that was a unique triad. And there was concern at that point that, you know, would Russia stay with the OPEC Plus group, and because Saudi sort of played the power card and 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 trumped them, um, using the verb, not the the guy. And it was just like, okay. They went from being sort of co-heads to Saudi leading the charge. So was Russia going to stay in? So fast forward to this week, and we had the OPEC ministers monthly meeting, and Russia at the beginning of that meeting said, you know, our policy and our plan is that Russia is going to stay with this group and, and be participating in these decisions until 2035 and we've never heard russia say anything long-term like that at all so so that's a pretty strong endorsement because the russians aren't one to to speak idly of such things so so you've got russia and saudi aligned on working together as far as oil supply management from the opec plus producers and then with with saudi they're, they're holding everyone's feet to the fire, making sure that if you say you're going to cut back your production by X amount, you better be doing it. And they're making, you, they're making these countries that, that don't, they call them cheaters, um, retroactively cut more so that their numbers are, are in line. And, and the Saudi oil minister is Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. And he's, how old is he? in his 60s, late 60s. And he's a super experienced oil and gas guy. Like he knows of what he speaks. and and this this powerful, highly educated, very experienced gentleman at the closing press conference at the meeting yesterday, and they don't often have a press conference after these ministerial meetings. It's not like the big OPEC meeting where there's 50,000 reporters there. This is the minister's meeting, but they had a press conference at the end of it, and and he said, uh, and I'm going to quote him from his speech, because one of the things he said was talking to to let the market understand that they're serious about the cheaters making up the volumes, is that using tactics to overproduce and hide noncompliance have been tried many times in the past and always end in failure. They achieve nothing and bring harm to our reputation and credibility. Whoa. So if you're, you know, UAE, you're 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 sitting up and taking notice. And then and then he goes in and takes aim at the the financial side of the oil market. And this is another quote, and just remember who's saying this when I when I read it out. We will never leave this market unattended. I want the guys in the trading floors to be as jumpy as possible. I'm going to make sure whoever gambles on this market will be ouching like hell. That's a quote from Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. So, so he is really serious about managing the oil market for, for inventory and price, which comes from supply and demand. And he's in charge of the demand side for the OPEC plus group along with Russia. So he's, putting word out that the financial market that has tries to have fun shorting oil prices, his view is that their management is tight enough that that is not going to happen. So you've got the whole OPEC plus side being really, really constructive. And at the same time, on the supply side from non-OPEC, the biggest portion of which is the US, we've got companies who have been told in no uncertain terms by their shareholders, we don't want you adding debt. We don't want you outspending. You don't need to grow. We want you to make money. So the capital has been way rolled back. The production growth has been way downsized. So that part of the supply piece is coming in as well. So that Russia Saudi US triad uh, has changed. I think the relationship's better and it just gives you a lot more confidence on the supply side. So then the the only thing that we're looking at is the demand side. And like we talked about, the only hole in that right now, we've kind of done our V-shape recovery. We're kind of flatlining on things like diesel and gasoline. And, And the only little hole in it right now is jet. And that is the kind of thing that OPEC can manage. And like we talked about, they can also manage things that happen to demand if we go into, impacts from a potential second wave
0: of COVID. While you're certainly speaking to what is obviously going to be an evolution of uh, of the situation ongoing, it also speaks to the importance of having an active management uh, overlay exposure to the energy space in general. Jen, this has been a really fascinating and informative discussion. I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your insights.
1: Always fun to chat with you, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: And I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this edition of On the Money with Dynamic Funds. And until next time, I'm Mark Brisley. You've been listening to another edition of On the Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca.
2: This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.